Hello, hello, and welcome to Elixir Mix, your Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Alex Gutmash, and on our panel today, we have myself, Josh Adams. Hello. Lars Wickman. Hello. And Bruce Tate. Hi, everybody. And joining us today, we have Sasha Yurich. Hi. Hey, Sasha. You want to introduce yourself? Uh, well, I'm Sasha Yurich, and I'm a developer working for uh, primarily with Elixir and uh, for the past 10 years, and maybe you have heard of me as uh, being an author of a book called Elixir in Action read both uh, both editions of that book. Uh, it was such a good read that I had to do it the second time around as well. <laughs> yeah, ho- hope you enjoyed it on the reread too. It was great. I mean, I picked up a lot of things that I think I missed the first time because I read the first one, I think it was I think it was published in 2015 and then I, I also read it in 2015 back when I was looking for a, a language that had concurrency as a first class citizen and you did a great job convincing me. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. Nice to hear it. Yeah, I think it's the best Elixir book ever written, and uh, I don't think there's a close second. It's it's absolutely brilliant. Wow, thanks. I mean, that, that means a lot coming from you, you know, as a colleague author. Roxio calls themselves career rocket fuel for curious coders. They are some of the most experienced Elixir trainers in the business with over five years of Elixir teaching experience. We're in the midst of a pandemic, but don't let that stop you from continuing to learn. Roxio offers remote Elixir and OTP live training courses with no more than six participants. These short two and a half day sessions give you plenty of keyboard time with your coach, Bruce Tate, co-author of the Programming Phoenix and Designing Elixir Systems with OTP. Groxio also has three extensive Elixir self-study courses available. Whether you want to learn Elixir, OTP, or Phoenix Live View, the self-guided trainings give you the videos, projects, and books you need to make your own breakthroughs. Groxio wants to be your Elixir on-ramp. Subscribe or buy a course today at grox.io. So you've been part of the uh, Elixir and Erlang ecosystem for some time now, and you've seen it develop, uh, you know, gone from Elixir and in its infancy to now where you know we're seeing lots of small companies, medium-sized companies, even large companies. How has that uh, evolution been over time? And you know, what do you think we're doing well? What do you think we can improve on? Stuff like that. Mm. Yeah, so uh, I think it's safe to say that I have been around for a while. You know, I started using Elixir like in 2013. That was before 1.0. At that point, I was already using Erlang for a couple of years. So, you know, I've seen that things uh, happen given before Elixir. And I mean, definitely you can see a lot of progress in the ecosystem. So like the, the way things were back then, I remember, especially with Erlang before even Elixir started, it was like unclear which build tool uh, you're supposed to be using. The ecosystem was much smaller. We didn't have like these frameworks so much. There were a couple of them, but not really so evolved as uh, Phoenix, for example. So I think that Elixir already significantly upped the game in the Beam ecosystem. And uh, my personal sentiment is that it kind of also pushed Erlang itself to move forward. You know, so now Erlang uh, has like a standard build tool, which is much better than what it used to be like with Rebar 3. And the ecosystem of Elixir, of course, started growing. So now we have Phoenix. We see a lot of interesting different things like Live View, which is all the craze like in the past year or so uh, since it has been announced with Phoenix dashboard or live dashboard, right? So this is something that I'm personally very excited about because uh, I feel that with some more additions, like most notably with respect to uh, support and persistence, it can, in simpler cases, really replace like those uh, heavyweight solutions, you know, such as say New Relic or Datadog or, you know, using anything on the side, you know, so like I I see the way I wish... visualize it for like simpler systems, smaller systems, you know, I just add this live dashboard, maybe fill in a couple of blanks, you know, say I'm going to use this persistent store or something like that. And then I have like dashboard immediately out of the box without needing to set up accounts and uh, credentials and, you know, have a safe storage for those kind of things. So this is something that I'm uh, really excited about. Uh, I quite like uh, use quite frequently Oban. I don't know if you have heard about that thing. So it's like a persistent job queue based on PostgreSQL uh, notifications mechanism. Uh, really elegant. This is my like sort of a go-to tool. Uh, so like I started doing the consulting slash mentoring work about a year ago. And uh, very often, you know, like clients come to me with some ideas, you know, using distributed Erlang and whatnot. And very often we just switch, uh, replace this with a simple open mechanism, you know, just store it into database and then it does the rest of the thing. Things. You don't even have to have like cluster to, to make it work in a multi-node environment. So this is a pretty cool thing. So yeah, definitely think the, the ecosystem is growing. You can see it, uh, you know, from year to year, not exactly day to day, but definitely you, you can see it over time. I also do feel that there's a lot of potential to move forward. There's a lot of room for improvements and 
it's kind of my you know hobby mission so to speak to try to evangelize uh what we could do better how we could you know even uh, push uh, push even further this uh great ecosystem and these foundations that we haven't been so one of the things that's pretty cool to me about the the whole elixir story is not just the things that are done but the things that we have decided not to do right so features that that we we've stayed away from you know so some of the mocking frameworks early on some of the some of the things that some of the projects that were started, but but we moved away from when it was clear that they weren't the right direction. I mean, early on it was Dynamo, but you know, gosh, gosh, pick your, you know, pick pick the direction that you want to go there. Or with you know the tasks agents thing, the, the, the kind of early um, understanding that agents weren't the way to go. So yeah, I agree with you on on the growth and also the places where where we didn't. Or we decided not to play that note and leave some air for the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that Jose plays probably a great role in that. So uh, as far as I remember, uh, he was very, you know, had a very strong opinion about, say, not porting device to the Elixir ecosystem, you know, and uh, I feel that this has been a good uh, good choice because you don't want to have like these heavyweights all-in-one solutions. And a similar thing for mocking it that you mentioned, you know, like Mox is, you know, pretty lightweight and actually doesn't push you into the wrong direction, so to speak, where you just, you know, do this, how would I call it, mindless mocking, you know, mechanical mocking of functions. You know, you want to actually define some contracts to the external world and you want to mock on based on those contracts. And those are like explicit mocks and contracts, as I think is the name of his famous article uh, he wrote about a couple of years ago. So, yeah, I think that uh, Jose definitely played a big role in that. I can remember walking in with Jose in one of the, from one of the conferences and you know, so the whole the whole group was saying, "What do you want, Mox? What do you want them? Never." <laughs> yeah, I think that you were at that that particular Elixir Comp in in Austin, one of the first ones. Not sure that you were there for that particular conversation. Mm, yeah, I missed that one, unfortunately. But you know, it's on my to do list. <laughs> right. That that kind of reminds me of uh, Elixir Comp 2018, where. Jose went up on stage, I think it was the keynote, and he was saying how uh, they've been working on a type system for Elixir, and everyone was cheering. And he's like, oh, we, we scrapped the whole thing. <laughs> and then uh, it was kind of funny uh, that everyone's uh, you know, spirits were lifted and then dropped. But I felt fine. I'm not, uh, I'm not feeling like the, the Elixir language is lacking for a type system, but I could be, I could be solo there. Mm. Yeah, that's that's bold. I, I I really appreciate decisions like that one, um, where where we say, okay, there's this there's this part of the Elixir identity that's been there since the beginning. And, and if we want to change that course, everything has to be right and perfect. And, and I really respect that. So there's another place, Sasha, where you know, as, an, as an author, one of the things I've tried to do is provide an editorial voice. But there was this one particular pivotal moment um, for our line of books when Lance Holperson was writing a book, the Phoenix OTP one. And you know, it strikes me that new languages all have these kind of traps, you know, quagmires that you can that you can slip into if you're not careful. And you were pivotal pivotal in a review of that book that, in exactly the right way, showed that this book was dangerous in that it could take the user in the wrong direction. And I remember that after after we had that conversation, um, you know, we decided to pull the pull the book completely off off the out of the beta program and rewrite it with with your ideas in mind. So could you talk about about the idea that for new elixir developers an OTP process is not an object or a global variable? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I remember exactly that uh, situation, you know, and so I met Lance a couple of times live and uh, I still owe him a drink or a couple of drinks for, you know, making him work uh, more when the book was almost done. <laughs> but yeah, the, the general idea, the situation that we had there was that uh, the code was relying too much on using processes for uh, organizing code, for organizing, you know, design concerns. So this is the trap I think many of us fall into sooner or later. Many of us who arrived from the uh, object-oriented paradigm, right? So I also did object, a lot of object-oriented programming back in the day. 
And you know, when you when you like figure out these processes, especially gen servers, uh, they kind of look like objects. You know, they have the state, they encapsulate the state, and they respond to messages, which is like sort of a small talk uh, idea, like the pure idea of objects. You know? And then you try to kind of emulate the the things that you have learned in the previous paradigm. You know, using those processes. But this is not really what you're supposed to be doing because it has like a bunch of different issues uh, with respect to performance and memory overhead and consistency guarantees you basically you're kind of abusing misusing processes you know so even though they seem like objects they are actually much more close to closer to microservices if you will or some kind of small embedded independent programs that you run as a part of a larger program so that's what processes would be and gen servers would be. Uh, I like to say like services, you know, mini, nano, pico services. And so the idea is like when you want to organize uh, some more complex states, you know, what we've learned in object-oriented paradigm, we split it into different classes and objects, you know, smaller pieces. The way you want to do this in uh, Elixir, Erlang, I presume in any functional languages, you want to use smaller pieces of data. It's right? so not processes, you want to use data, right? Like if you have, say, an order and order item, you're going to have like one structure for order, which contains many uh, instances of structure of order item, but you're not going to use processes for that. So this would be like the pure functional way where you can uh, then reap all the benefits like immutability and, you know, reasoning about uh, what happens in the program. That, that was the general idea. Yeah, and it, it seems like those ideas came through very much in Elixir in Action, which is probably why I like the book so much. In fact, when, when I was working with James Gray, I don't know if you've ever met James, but no. but he is he was my co-author with, with Designing Elixir Systems um, with OTP. And so his favorite book is Elixir in Action. Oh, in wow. our first chapter was start with the right data. So um, he was learning those lessons pretty well. So can you talk a little bit about your writing process? Mm, you mean like uh, the book writing process? Yeah. Right. So uh, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to, you know, extrapolate. I have like exactly one example, you know, unlike you, I wrote exactly one book. So, <laughs> but the way, the way it worked, you know, I basically just, you know, Manning approached me and I gave them some kind of a idea like okay we could write this and i gave them like a high level plan like basically chapters with uh, maybe sections or uh yeah chapters with uh yeah with sections i think it was just like level two outline so pretty simple and like this would be the general idea and then you know once this uh, once we all agreed on that i started writing you know so i had like some vague idea and it, it fell apart you know pretty soon so for example what was supposed to be chapter two ended up being chapters two until five, you know, so those pages were burning like super crazy. I didn't really think that it would go like that. So at some point I was, I was worried, like, you know, uh, how is this going to book, how is this book uh, going to look like, you know, is it going to have like thousand pages, you know, I wanted to avoid that. So, you know, I pretty much in my mind, I viewed, uh, I regarded it as a sort of a software project in a sense, you know, you have like when you're writing a software project, when you want to build something, you know, you have like some fuzzy idea about what you want to do and then you kind of start following that plan and you adapt as you learn something new as you get some insights uh, as you go along right and so it was pretty much the same with the book you know a lot of this stuff so like the book has this incremental narrative uh, building examples on top of the examples i didn't really plan for this to happen you know it's just at some point in the middle of it just you know while i was you know drinking coffee and thinking about it you know it clicked in my mind so it's just you know evolved but uh, yeah, I guess the the whole advice that I could give to anyone is, you know, try not to, who wants to write the book, you know, definitely I, I advise writing the book. It's a great experience. And when you do it, you know, have some general plan, try not to worry about it too much, you know, just start writing and think about it, you know, uh, do some introspection, retrospection, you know, think about what you wrote and things somehow fall into place. Wow. So I'm, I'm laughing and shaking my head, you know, fully muted, <laughs> but, but it just, it's kind of like, oh, well, it's sort of an accident. I just kind of, you know, drop this masterpiece on, on the world. And, <laughs> and the advice generally is just write a good book. Okay. <laughs> You're right. Well, right. Now you yeah, make it sound yeah. bad, you know. Uh, who, who is the editor on the project? Did, did Marian have anything to do with it? Marian Baje? Marian did some, uh, you know, like very high level input. Uh, Karen, uh, Karen Miller, I think, was the the editor on both both editions. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, wonderful job. And I hate you for that description. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think maybe the key, the key ingredient was really, and I knew this from, you know, writing software is to take your time. So like when we were negotiating about deadline, you know, I, I just took like a very, very relaxed deadline. So, you know, I don't have like this pressure in my brain that, you know, I just have to type out something fast, you know, so that I can be comfortable and relaxed about it. And I think that this was a uh, very important for, you know, keeping my sanity, uh, you know, mental health. And, uh, you know, I think it ended up being a very important factor for, you know, writing a book which seems to be well received yeah so you know i take the opposite approach i go for the volume approach <laughs> maybe one of them will be pretty good so would you say that there is a common goal with the book the libraries and the general ideas that you bring to the community is there a greater erlangalist plan quite how to name your blog erlangalist i guess erlangalist yeah it, it should yeah. be like some sort of a wordplay on evangel erlang evangelist or something like that yeah, so, I, well, I guess there is, I don't know, it's not like I have a super master plan, but in a sense, you know, the book, I think many authors will say that the book kind of serves, well, as say a talk or a blog to organize your own thoughts. You know, I often like to say that I feel I actually learn more from my talks and articles and uh, the book uh, than uh, the people actually consuming those resources, you know, because those are like the things that you somehow know in your mind, most of them or some, some things you need to research uh, as well, you go into details, but you kind of never do this until you have to teach them to someone else, you know, so in a sense, you know, the book and then some things that I've been producing lately in the open source community kind of followed my understanding of Beam, which I think was there pretty much from the start, but you know what, I wasn't really conscious about it, aware of it all the time. And this is the, that whole thing that uh, I think there is like this very famous table in Elixir in Action Chapter 1, where, you know, I explain how or demonstrate how, you know, uh, we, we ran two projects. I was, I was working on two projects at the same time. And one based on uh, a non-Beam language, you know, I had to reach for a lot of these uh, technologies outside run had a, have a lot of moving pieces you know run different kind of things like separate cron jobs separate schedulers redis and whatnot and with beam you can do a lot of stuff uh, directly on beam you know and so i think that this is the potential that we didn't really explore you know fully that there's still a lot of room for improvements there but in general like something that i think we can do on beam that we should at some point do on Beam, like in languages as Elixir and Erlang, is the following. Like, say that I want to write a typical uh, small to medium web-facing CRUD. And, you know, you could argue that most companies or many companies are doing that kind of work. You know, not, not all of us are really Google or Facebook and the like. So, you know, I want to do this small to medium web-facing CRUD, have some persistence, you know, maybe run this thing on a couple of machines for better fault tolerance. And I want to be able to do this using only a single language, only a single moving piece. You know? So I do something like mix new, my super, my super app, and I add a couple of dependencies in the mix and fill in a couple of blanks and there it is. It's working, you know, and it already has persistence, like SQL-based persistence without using external database. It can, you know, deal with concurrency. It can uh, serve SSL, uh, HTTPS, you know, it can be distributed at least you know for some fault tolerance doesn't necessarily have to be simultaneously powered by multiple machines but maybe you know like in a, a primary slash failover mode or something like that you know so uh, those are the kind of things that i would like to have available directly in the language you know? and i think that as long as we don't have that there is a lot of potential to improve things in beam and in general in software development because i feel that these days backend development is like super super hard you know regardless of the language because of these side issues these things this like devops if you will these devops tasks that we kind of outsourced uh, to other tools which are good by themselves but in many cases they feel like you know like we're using rocket ships you know to go from here to there like i don't know a couple of feet further so they definitely feel like overkill in many cases yeah, so I, I like the idea of using the Beam as like a runtime to build systems on rather than this runs my Elixir program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we often say that like Beam, uh, Erlang, Elixir, that they are like operating systems for our, for our code, you know, and then we need to explore and uh, use this feature uh, even more vigorously. So uh, definitely the ecosystem has to grow uh, for that to happen. But I mean, there are already many great examples. I think uh, the aforementioned dashboard live dashboard is a great example of how you can do this thing 
Phoenix itself, especially with presence, for example, live view is a great example of that. You know, live view is, I think, very hard to emulate on non-beam. I mean, I know that there are some projects that do this, but you know, you cannot really do this as easily and as consistently with such guarantees unless you have something like beam, you know, and even the, the channels themselves, you know, we kind of take these things for granted. They have been around for like a couple of years, but Phoenix channels, like when you compare to other languages where you inevitably need to reach for say Redis and Phoenix channels just, just work out of the box immediately, you know? So these are the examples and we have to push those examples even further. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Like, like with live view, it's, it's not that it's not that you can do any single micro communication quickly, right. Or in, in the right way or even the programming model, it's that when you put them all together, the consistency of performance means that all the messages will get through and the slowest one will get through in, in you know, well under, under a second or two. And so when, when, you, when you have all those guarantees that stack up on top of each other versus one micro communication that goes wrong out of several thousand, as you get with almost every other um, platform in the world, it's a dramatically different experience. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that you don't have to pull in any external dependencies is a huge win. I mean, for our previous company, we had issues with Redis because we had to go through S-Tunnel because it was an uh, insecure communication channel. And the amount of issues that we had with that, I mean, it was it was insane how many messages we lost just from that, uh, that interaction between our app, S-Tunnel, and Redis. So, yeah, I mean, even if, let's say, LiveView is slow or drops one or two messages, I mean it's probably the least of your worries compared to other tools. And before you know it, you're in downtown Tibet shaving yak. And then, then you say, oh, I can do better. I'm going to teach this yak how to shave himself. And then uh, it gets but, more- but also, But also the yak has a global interpreter lock. So it's a fool's errand in the first place. <laughs> so you frequently advocate for using the beam for tasks that you could avoid using other systems for, which is what we were just talking about. What are some scenarios where you think it's entirely reasonable to use those external systems? So an obvious one would be if you're sharing data between your Elixir system and something else, you might use Redis or Postgres for that. But is there like a more general heuristic you can suss out for when that's an acceptable thing? Mm, yeah, I mean, that, like, so there is a pragmatic choice. And then there is a, the question of why are we, are we using something because uh, we don't have a better option, right? So like, I don't know, uh, people are, for example, using uh, Kubernetes to orchestrate their services uh, around uh, the cluster. And I mean, I would either use that or something similar to that these these days myself, you know, I wouldn't be happy about it, but it's like a pragmatic choice, you know, you want to get the job done. Also, you know, using some SQL database like PostgreSQL, MySQL, whatever you prefer, I would call it a pragmatic choice these days. You know, you have this thing, it's a big complex thing and uh, you definitely want to use that in most cases uh, rather than say Mnesia, you know, which is available in uh, Beam, but you know, it's not SQL database and I'm a firm believer in SQL by default and KV where where it's really necessary. So yeah, those will be uh, some examples. Maybe also, I don't know, Nginx as a reverse proxy, if you have a couple of different, a couple of different services, a couple of different web servers stashed around, you know, so behind, so you want to stash them behind a single thing. So yeah, I think that these days, uh, in many cases, we, you know, don't really have a practical, from the practical perspective, other options to use, you know, but I would like to see, uh, you know, I had this crazy idea, I mentioned it in a couple of talks, which none of which was actually, I think, recorded. But the idea is like, let's, uh, why don't we have, say, an SQL database as a library in Beam, you know, think about it. Like you bring as a mixed dependency, some library and you just start something in your supervision tree and you have a built-in embedded SQL server running, you know? So this is obviously a very complex task. You know, people looked at me as if I was crazy, you know, why would you want to do that? You know, you have PostgreSQL. And I think that this is an example of how much we are entrenched into like the old way of thinking. Like, I mean, PostgreSQL is great. I'm super, super huge fan of it. And I use other databases previously, like MySQL, uh, SQL Server, uh, a lot, especially back in my .NET days. But uh, ultimately, you know, when I look at it, and I think uh, next year I'm going to celebrate 20 years of my full-time professional, you know, employment as a developer. And I think I use a lot of SQL and I think I maybe use like, 5% 5% of all the features that were available. It really feels like I'm using this rocket ship only to sleep in it or something like that, you know? So uh, I think that we can actually have much lighter uh, solutions, much lighter options. 
which would actually make things simpler for us. You know, think about when we talk about databases, how much effort collectively in our industry has gone into solving the mismatch between uh, database data and the language data. You know, even in Elixir, we have a lot of effort invested, you know, to map like in Ecto, to map data from say PostgreSQL to native Elixir structures and uh, vice versa, you know. So like if you if you had those options available in the language, uh, you could like lose all of this complexity that there is no pooling of connections, right? If everything happens in memory. So there are like a lot of interesting options. But uh, yeah, to, to get back to the question, Josh, I mean, you know, there's theory and there's practice, you know, when someone asks me to do the job, you know, I'm not going to the theorize that, you know, like, let's build a database first, and then we're going to solve your problem. You know, I'm going to pick the tool which makes sense. And of course, that's, you know, a practical, pragmatical choice. I'm, after all, I'm an engineer, but I think that we should, you know, really rethink some of the things that are kind of like a, like the holy book in our uh, profession, you know, especially, I mean, in other languages where people just take it for granted, they need to use a KV and the reverse proxy in a database, but also in Elixir, where also we think that, you know, we cannot really do persistence without external database, you know, what if we had an internal database, like that's an option. And maybe as uh, the ecosystem, as the community, you know, we should kind of push ourselves uh, towards that place. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. And I kind of think that that as an industry... There, there are some such great things about relational databases, right? It's, it's the the math behind it makes it makes you know um, distribution, um, query optimization, all these things that are really difficult problems possible. But also, we're getting to the point where it's built on top of a fundamental philosophy that's wrong for functional development, right? The, the idea that we have, I mean, even if you say, what's what's the first acronym everybody learns, right? CRUD, right? Create, read, update, delete. We know that some of those, two of those are bad, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I kind of cast a jealous eye in the direction of closure every now and then as I look at the datomic approach to solving the problem. And um, to your point, you know, they've, they've basically, they've simplified a whole, just just a whole slice of, of the problems that that make the common the common problems that we solve so hard. Mm, yeah, I think we should always rethink some things. You know that that's something that uh, for me, you know, Erlang and Elixir Beam in general opened my eyes. You know, like I was already uh, doing a lot of programming when I started using Erlang, and I had like this idea about how software development should look like. And uh, you know, after uh, say a year or two with Erlang, it completely blew my mind. Like you know, hang on a second, like I don't need actually a, a reverse proxy, you know, I, I didn't really realize it, you know, but, you know, why do I need this thing when I, when I have like this beam, you know, I just spin off a process for each quest and there it is, you know, it works. Yeah. Aside from a SQL database implemented inside the beam, what other parts do you think we should be bringing in? Because you have your library site encrypted, which I think is a fairly nice, not too big a chunk of that sort of problem space like how could we make a web application live entirely in the beam that seems like a good a good example of what you can do are there any other things aside from the database that you're looking at that like this i would want people to do this or should we just go for the database right away i would like to see kubernetes in many many features of kubernetes you know ported natively to beam I think that we have like sort of, uh, if you, you know, squint a lot, there are like, there's previous arts, so to speak. So there was a thing called React Core, part of defunct React, you know, and I think React Core is still somehow available. It's, I mean, I wouldn't use it myself these days. And even back then it was like pretty challenging, but like it had, I'm not going to say that, you know, I think that, you know, people are going to come at me with pitchforks and whatnot for even kind of comparing React Core and Kubernetes. But I think that in the essence, you had some, of these similar ideas in the sense that like you could start with React Core, you could start gen server like thing, which runs somewhere in the cluster, you know, and if it stops, uh, that there is going to be a replica which takes over. So that kind of things. 
Have you seen uh, Brian Hunter's talk from ElixirConf EU about the system he is building and sort of the way they keep replicas up and running in different availability zones? No, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. I'll put it in the show notes. You should. You would love that talk. It's really a great way to, um, you know, to look at. I mean, even even simulation. Um, some of the things that they're doing at the at the basic level with gen servers, pretty amazing. Mm. So I think that we have a lot of potential for that. I mean, there was also a project. I think even ten years ago, I, I saw it for the first time. A thing called Cloud Cloudy Cloud I. I don't know how it's pronounced that basically also was based on Beam and allowed you to write programs in say Ruby or Python and it's like distributed somehow in the cluster, you know? So it was kind of a lightweight predecessor to uh, some things that Kubernetes gives. I think Kubernetes really mixes a lot of things in the back. So I'm uh, really oversimplifying things here. But yeah, uh, like the general thing, uh, the, the, the core feature for me, which I would like to see this orchestration of uh, services of processes of activities you know i want to say like i'm going to start this thing and i want to run at most five of them and irrespective of you know whether some machine crashes or not you know i i can take it for granted that i have like a couple of those things available so i think that like uh, porting that uh, would be pretty cool in general like etcd etcd like features so uh, uh linearizable strongly consistent uh, kb what I'm really excited about, I only discovered recently, but actually it has been around for a while, is a library called RA. So this is from uh, RabbitMQ uh, space. Uh, it's uh, like a toolkit for building raft, raft-based consensus. You know, there, there have been a bunch of different raft implementations. I have been lurking at them, and you know, they all felt like more like someone's playground rather than something serious. And RA really, you know, from everything I've seen, looks uh, like pretty serious. They even, uh, I think that they've tested it with uh, the Jepson, the Jepson thing. So uh, that's like a pretty, pretty good indication of how serious they are. And I still haven't tried it, but this is something that I'm very, very excited about because I think that it can fuel, you know, a lot of work in the distributed space. Uh, so, which is where I kind of say that, you know, um, I said it in this talk called Solo Verlang and Elixir somewhere at, near the end. That, you know, there are some issues with distributed Erlang, and then I think people, you know, took it too seriously. I mean, distributed Erlang is great, but I still think that we are lacking this high-level porcelain. And so I think that as a community, we need to work to make like things easy, you know, because uh, these days when you ask someone who is like expert in Beam, like how do I build a distributed system in Beam? And then you're going to get a lot of, well, it depends. And uh, there are like, there's like this problem and that problem and so on. And so it's kind of still not clear, you know. And then what, what do people do? You know, they go to other languages and they start using Kubernetes and whatnot more than they should, you know, or they go serverless, right? Yeah, I think Horde, Swarm, and LibCluster have made some some good strides on that front. I think there's still a little bit more work to do, but yeah, I think I think we're definitely making some some strides there. So hopefully, if anyone's listening wants to contribute to those projects, you know, go for it. But in that spirit of pulling things into the Beam and having the Beam do take on more responsibilities and ownership of your application. Do you have any opinions of, you know, how you would like to see that? Like if, let's say, you know, we pull in like a rust NIF and it's a safe NIF and we don't have to worry about crashing the beam. Is that acceptable and say, hey, you know, we're just using the beam to orchestrate and run this, uh, you know, this kind of component. Something comes to mind that uh, there's a full text search library written in Rust. It's called Tantivy, I think. I'll put a link. But yeah, there's, there's a item on my to-do list to pull that into an Elixir project and have like a full text search database in Elixir and just have Elixir take care of persistence and then communicating across that. Mm -hmm. but. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, as long as we are kind of bringing in stuff from other languages, I, I'm typically by default fan of using a port rather than a NIF because port is kind of more like, you know, separating the boundary between Beam and that other thing, you know, but uh, I mean, obviously if you bring Rust, so you should get uh, better safety properties than say if you bring a C code directly in, right? So it shouldn't really crash as far as I know. Uh, Beam shouldn't really crash. So yeah, I mean, uh, definitely bringing in stuff from other languages is fine. I would personally love to see the ecosystem itself, you know, growing in the sense that, like I don't need to bring another language because say I want to talk to an SQL server database, which is actually the case we had at some point. We brought in uh, Rust to talk to the SQL server, you know? I mean, we, we did it previously using Erlang's ODBC, but it wasn't really uh, working well for us. So uh, different options were uh, considered because uh, we needed to speak to different databases. We ultimately chose uh, Rust instead of say uh, C-sharp, which was also on the table, you know? So yeah, I think uh, 
these days, again, practically from the practical point, like if you find some library missing or some yeah, piece of functionality, it's pretty easy to bring different languages uh, in a bunch of different ways. Ultimately, I would, of course, love to see uh, having our own, you know, native libraries for most things, because those give you, first of all, it's like easier to maintain those things and people can contribute, but also because they give you like, uh, they, they play nice, play really well with Beam, you know, like with scheduling and reduction counting and, uh, you know, not uh, being too greedy with resources and whatnot. So, I mean, even with dirty schedulers and whatnot, I think that still things written in other languages will not necessarily play as nice as, you know, when you have the native option. Yeah, composition is everything, right? It's not just not just on the functional side, but also the way that, that the supervisors compose all the way through the ecosystem, on and on and on. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Mm, exactly, with links and monitors and whatnot. I mean, you can integrate much better if you're native, yeah. And now with uh, the JIT coming in, OTP24, you know, uh, no longer need to worry about the uh, performance problems. All those have gone away. Yeah, this is super exciting news. And I think that like, when was that announced? Maybe about a month or two months ago. I mean, we always knew that something was being, you know, done there, but I wasn't really aware it's like so, so close to being actually released. And this has been like a big announcement together with uh, also the, the announcement that WhatsApp is working on a strongly typed language. And then there are some formatters coming in Erlang uh, world. So, you know, it's been like a pretty good end of this uh, otherwise mostly crappy year, right? <laughs> Amen to that. Yeah, definitely. So would you say that your library parent is an actual approach towards making uh, making this whole idea of not needing to know as much in depth about like supervisors and all the details, mm -hmm. like trying to make it more clear? It seems like it simplifies things a lot. And is this part of your your general idea that we need to replace Kubernetes? Yeah, parent is definitely much, uh, you know, like at a lower level and a smaller scale. Uh, it started out of basically frustration slash need because I was repeating some patterns over and over. But ultimately, yeah, the, the vision of parent kind of is aligns with my vision of what supervisors should be. And I usually explain to people, you know, supervisor is kind of like embedded system D, you know, and... So what this means is that it's first and foremost in charge of starting things and stopping things, you know, so restarting is optional in supervisor. This is kind of, you know, uh, we all have this problem. We explain supervisors in terms of restarting. You know, I do this in the book as well, but restarting is an optional. You have like temporary children, which are never restarted. You have transient children, which are only restarted if they crash, you know, but yeah, the more important thing about supervisor is that, you know, it provides structure to our processes. So it provides structure to our system. Like we know we first start foo and then bar and then buzz synchronously, you know. So until foo acknowledges I have been started, you will not go with starting next processes, right? So you have like synchronous start in a well-defined order. And then you have synchronous takedown in the opposite order. So we stop buzz and then we go to bar and so on. This is what system D does for you. Again, restarting is an optional thing, right? You also want to have binding of life cycles. So like I want to say bar cannot live without foo, things like that. And so supervisors kind of give you all that, but it's all very, in, in some ways, it's kind of, you know, circumvented, indirectional. Uh, you have like these strategies, you have like uh, one, one for one, rest for one, one for all, and then you kind of mix and match those things. When you want to start things dynamically, you use dynamic supervisor. And what I found out is that pretty quickly you kind of end up with very deep supervision trees. When you want to discover your dynamic children, like you want to find out where they are, you need to reach for a thing called registry. Uh, it further complicates things. And, you know, I, I like to think that I'm like pretty proficient in those areas and I myself have problems working with it. You know, I struggle with it. I have to really have like a deep focus and concentration when I'm uh, doing even something a little bit more involved with, you know, uh, processes and binding life cycles and you know people who are mostly not used to those things who i let's say mostly use uh, just you know phoenix and ecto maybe a little bit of just server i think that they are confused with all this thing. they find it, uh, this whole space overwhelming and so parent ultimately you know tries to rethink the supervisor interface like uh, hang on a second you know let's maybe try a slightly different approach it's basically pretty much similar in the feature set it has the automatic restart, restart intensity, and so on and so forth. But most of the time, you don't really need to uh, nest things. You can like have just level one parent, you know, and you can say, I'm going to start full, 
and then you could say I'm gonna start bar, and bar can only live as long as full lives. So you just connect this service to another previously existing service, uh, those kind of things. You can discover children directly through the supervisor. So you can just ask the supervisor, uh, what is the process ID of child foo? You can, in theory, do this with regular supervisors, but as long as they are not dynamic. And it's kind of, you know, the interface is somewhat crappy. You basically just fetch all the children and then you find the process ID of the child you want, but only for non-dynamic supervisors. So with parent, it's, it gets much easier and you can actually get I think with a simpler code, with smaller code, you can actually get much more elaborate and more flexible uh, like lifecycle bindings. Uh, we literally had this case uh, for my, my clients, I think a few weeks ago. So the application, uh, the system has to deal with multi-tenancy. We have to run multiple dynamic instances of Ecto on different databases. And uh, I did the first take with plain supervisors and it was like level three or four nesting of supervisor in a supervisor in a supervisor plus a registry, you know, very involved code. And I was like already planning, I'm going to do like some intensive talk slash brief workshop to, you know, explain to those developers what is going on here. And then I tried with parent and it's just one parent, very plain code, you know, very explicit about its intention. You can clearly see what goes on there. And uh, I think that there's a lot of potential there to, you know, simplify things. And uh, like in a sense, you know, Going back to the previous question, you know, like the early start of the discussion, you know, uh, when we talk about Elixir in action, for me, my favorite chapter and the chapter I get most compliments is the chapter about supervisors. And I think with parent, I could pretty much drop this entire chapter. You know, it's like the, the theme becomes simpler or simple enough. So you don't really have to spend like two involved intensive chapters describing the topic. And I think that it's a good indication that, you know, the abstraction actually makes sense. Yeah, so I'm teaching a, a OTP class to um, Elixir Kenya. And just like all the OTP classes, the hardest concept to get right is the concept of the supervisor. And it starts with the naming, right? It's um, supervisor is about life cycle. So I love, I love, love the word that you've chosen in parent because that communicates, you know, that, that life cycle concept. And I also love the way that you, you reach for those terms. Organization is, almost irrelevant, right? What you're looking for is how the life cycle works. And you're looking for a vocabulary that reinforces that that idea at every single step. That's that's brilliant. And and you know, I, I hope to see more parent for that reason. Mm, yeah, I think that you you're spot on, especially about the naming. You know, you can clearly see like if you watch any sort of established database of an involved project, whether in Erlang or Elixir. So like when they have a deeper supervisor tree, you will frequently find like sub 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 sub, you know, sub 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 something supervisor. You can like see this, these sort of lazy names, not because the developers were lazy, but because, you know, they're really, they're just mechanically, you know, you need this module because you need to nest supervisors, but they don't really make any sort of meaningful concept, you know, and that's kind of an indication that there are things that could be, you know, maybe done better. So uh, yeah, I think in parent, I took some inspiration from system D actually, which I'm not a huge fan of, just to be clear. I think that kind of system D is pretty uh, sort of complex and maybe too bloated in some ways, uh, but uh, there are definitely good ideas. And, you know, I wanted to say, be more explicit about like, if I want food to depend on bar, I want to say food depends on bar. I don't want to say like some rest for one, one for all, and then nest things in a different kind of ways because it's sort of circumvential way of stating what I want to state, right? Yeah, exercise for everybody at home. So open up an IEX instance and type H space supervisor and then count the number of headings and code font elements that are related to lifecycle and related to supervisor. And you'll find like five or six to one, more of them relate to the life cycle. I mean, you know, children terminate on and on and on. They're all life cycle words. Yeah. So. Mm. Yeah. Supervisor is all about life cycle. I think that you said it in your uh, book as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, James, who read Elixir in Action, who got it from you. So, <laughs> oh, really? I, I, did I actually write this? I need to read my book again. <laughs> I, I assumed that that's where James got it. I might be wrong there. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I find that an interesting like bit of a code smell in that sometimes you have a proliferation of modules just because you need more supervisors. Mm. 
for as you said mechanical reasons you either you either create more modules for having supervisors that are specifically named or you do some funky stuff with the child specs to just invoke the supervisor module directly mm. uh, yeah i've been digging into this recently as well and have I, I keep yeah. stumbling on uh, on your parent library. So. Yeah, so, the, so there is like kind of a good nesting and a bad nesting, I would say. So when it's just mechanical, it's sort of, I think, gives us a clue that maybe there is something missing in the abstraction, right? So like uh, the simple example is you have processes A, B, and C. What you want to have is like if A restarts, if A stops, restart A. If B stops, uh, restart B and C. And then you already need to nest supervisors. With parent, you don't need to do this. So I would call this a bad nesting. And then there is a good nesting, you know, like when you want to put everything under a single supervisor so you can stop everything at once. Like a good example is Phoenix Endpoint. You know, I don't know how many people are aware of. It's like an implementation detail, but Phoenix Endpoint is a rich tree of processes, right? So it's going to start, I don't know, something like by default 100 plus processes, you know, uh, just when you start the Phoenix Endpoint or the same thing with Ecto uh, as well, you know, and this is like something that's super exciting about Beam itself, you know, that library can bring in such a rich tree of activities uh, into your, into the client project, right? Uh, and you can start multiple instances of those things uh, as well. So this is like super cool. And this is a good nesting, you know, then you use kind of supervisor as a runtime encapsulation of all these activities. It's like the leader of those things. So yeah, that would be like a good good thing. But otherwise, I think that supervisor really forces us, at least that's my finding that the trees become too deep too soon for uh, most mechanical reasons. Very cool. I think we could all talk to you for roughly hours about these topics but that's about all the time we have so we should transition into picks one of the biggest pain points that i find as i talk to people about software is deployment it's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's i don't want to deal with docker i don't want to deal with kubernetes i don't want to deal with setting up servers i don't you know all of these different things and in a lot of ways devops has gotten a lot easier and in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from The Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of The Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. So let's see, Bruce, do you have any picks for us? Yeah, I have a couple of them. Of course, I have to give a shout out to Elixir in action. And that's not the word in action, that is in action. <laughs> uh, so the worst title for the best Elixir book ever written. And, and also I have a couple more picks. One is for Croxio. We sold out our OTP training, and it's really a cool deal because we have, while the pandemic is going on, we have classes that are no larger than six, and and the students drive, so it's it's really a student focused course. So if we're giving another course in in February, so there's a lot of time to think about it and and get your budget, um, your new training budget for next year. So um, that's happening. Also, I've mentioned before that we have a series called Why Things Fail. Um, and that's with Brian Troutwine. And he's one of my favorite speakers. And I get a chance to interview him. And this series is, this this release of the series is on the bug herd around the world, which is kind of a fascinating um, take on why the first shuttle was delayed in its launch and, and how that happened. And, you know, Brian's just such a such a brilliant mind in terms of thinking through failure. But you could you could find that on YouTube slash C slash Groxio. Thank you very much. Very cool. Josh, do you have any picks for us? I have two. The first is just to reiterate that the keynote from Codebeam using the beam to fight COVID-19 by Brian Hunter. Really, really good. 
talking about building a a piece of infrastructure in Elixir that he expects to be there for decades, which is a nice thing to think about. And then my other is is the return of the 90s web, which is just an article about, it mentions LiveView, but also just more generally about server-side web stuff, and maybe things shouldn't be quite as complicated as they are, and also web rings are cool. So that's it. Web rings are cool. Thank you for that. If you like web rings, go to the beambloggers.com web ring. And uh, if you blog about the beam, send a PR and get your blog on there. I hope to update is, is it the more Is the Orlangelist on the, on the web ring? Oh, yeah, Sasha. I'll just I'll hold out for your pull request. Just send it to me. Uh, okay. Yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, so I have one pick, and that's a post that came up from Binary Noggin just recently about BLE and Elixir, where previous guest Connor Rigby goes through a lot of binary pattern matching, the protocol stuff about how to <laughs> how to get to grips with BLE and how much simpler it is in Elixir than anything else. I found it a good read, and it's also incredibly helpful because I have Bluetooth, Bluetooth controlled the uh, smart switch thing for controlling my heater in this office. And I plan on controlling it from my nerves keyboard uh, at some point soon. So hopefully that'll be a blog post, but I'll definitely give a link to, uh, to this blog post because I found it very enlightening. And I always tend to plug Sasha's talk about the soul of Erlang and Elixir. So I might as well mention it while he's here. So uh, that's always worth rewatching. Thank you. Sasha, do you have a pick or anything else you'd like to promote? Yeah, I'm going to use this chance for self-plug and promote uh, the library called Boundary, which kind of helps you control who's calling who in your Elixir projects without needing to resort to umbrellas or some similar trickery and it actually gives you much finer grain control over that it's been evolving well when i've been using it like as a trial in the project uh, one project of my clients and uh, had some good experiences with it in that regard i'm also going to mention an article which i came upon recently it's actually from the, the beginning of the past year it's called deconstructing the monolith by shopify uh, where they actually you know i I wasn't even aware of, but the things that I've been doing with Boundary, they kind of started doing similar things, uh, like trying to objectively uh, find out and restrain which uh, which kind of dependencies exist in a project. This is done um, in a Ruby project, as far as I understand, but still, you know, it's a very interesting story. And there is a follow-up article, which is also pretty, pretty uh, interesting and then completely unrelated to anything. Uh, but I think that's like quite important i'm going to recommend a book which is called it's a manning book uh, which is called the unit testing principles practices and patterns which is like uh, one of the best books about unit testing that i have read i think that like my feeling is in many ways you know we have a skewed uh, kind of distorted over the mechanical view on uh, how things should be tested and um, this book kind of pretty, pretty does pretty good job on centering this thing and you know making making us more pragmatical and making our tests you know better and more reliable so to speak thank you so much that was a great list and that's all for this episode of elixir mix thank you sasha for joining us and uh, we'll see you next time thank you for having me Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.